Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Peter Langland-Hassan, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Cincinnati. His new book, Explaining Imagination, is just out from Oxford University Press. How do we think about situations and things that do not exist but might, engage in pretense and fiction, and create new works of art? These are central cases in in which we're using our imaginations, but what is imagination and how should it be explained? In his new book, Langan Hassan distinguishes using mental imagery to think about things and thinking about imaginary things, and he proceeds to give a reductive account of both. On his view, imagining isn't a sui generis mental state as the received view holds. Instead, it can be reduced to more basic states, in in particular belief, desire, and intention. Langan Hassan then uses his account to explain these central cases of imagination He defends his view against objections, and he considers how recent advances in deep learning might help explain the creative process. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Peter Langland-Hassan. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. um, So looking forward to talking about your, your new book, Explaining Imagination. Um, and before we get into the book, um, it's always nice to hear a bit about you and how you came to study philosophy, become a philosophy professor, and then the genesis of the book. Sure. Um, well, I first got into philosophy uh, as an undergraduate at uh, Columbia College in New York. Um, I uh, thought I might be an English major. Uh, I started off in that direction, but was sort of, <laughs> I, I, I discovered as soon as I w- was in, forced to take a philosophy class that I'd been really chafing against ideas being proposed without some sort of argument or substantiation or, you know, rigorous chain of uh, reasons behind them. And uh, I felt really refreshed in the first philosophy class I took to see how much people cared about uh, the minutia of how arguments are put together and why you should really should think one thing and not another thing and the amazing places you can get uh, just by trying to uh, support yourself with reasons. So I had a couple of great philosophy uh, professors there, uh, but I didn't... Um, seriously consider becoming a philosophy professor at all as an undergraduate. I was um, 
really focused on being a rock musician, uh, which I did <laughs> for a while throughout college. And then for about six years after college, I was, um, I was in a band called Elk City, which had a reasonable amount of, you know, small time music success. We had a few releases on independent record labels and tours in the U S and Europe and things, but it was never, uh, financially feasible, uh, type of operation. But, uh, um, but you know, it was, we were all in and, um, having a lot of fun doing that. But, um, gradually, you know, I started to think about other things. Um, and, um, I was on a, I, I was working part-time as a legal assistant in New York. You know, I, I, it was a job I only had to do three days a week uh, to support myself with a bunch of roommates uh, living way out in Brooklyn somewhere. Where, um, and um, I wandered into Barnes & Noble on a lunch break and happened to see David Chalmers' book, The Conscious Mind, <laughs> in search of a fundamental theory. Yeah. Sure, I'm not the only one. Um, and I just picked it up and started leafing through it. And I actually hadn't done any philosophy of mind as an undergraduate at Columbia. And I got really sort of fascinated by the first chapter of it. And thereafter, for a couple of years, well, in my downtime, I started clicking around and reading other papers online. And, and before you know it, I was sort of having thoughts about, well, oh, this is pretty interesting stuff. And hey, maybe instead of working part-time as a legal assistant, I can get into a graduate program in philosophy and I'll just do that instead. It'll pay about the same <laughs> and I'll, uh, <laughs> and I'll keep doing the band, you know, and we'll see how the band goes, you know? And, um, of course my bandmates rightly start to suspect that I wasn't completely into doing the band. Now that I was taking on this other project, I managed to get into the, uh, CUNY Graduate Center. Uh, I was really lucky to, honestly, because I, um, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't I hadn't prepared to apply. It had been five years since I had done philosophy. Um, I had <laughs> sounds a lot like had, my <laughs> really. There's a lot of similarities. Had, <laughs> yeah, with my history. <laughs> oh gosh, I mean, but uh, anyway, except the band. Really? I wasn't okay. doing a band. Right. I was doing. Yeah. I was a. I was a journalist. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. We needed to be fully seasoned, right? You know, yeah. before we could exactly. commit ourselves in the proper way to this endeavor. And, uh, um, and so, yeah, being in the band was kind of like it, it, being in any band, like it's kind of like being in a cult and it, you're either all in or all out. And they kind of saw me putting one foot out and, um, and the band sort of fell apart around that and other things. And at the same time, once I started doing philosophy, I was feeling like, ah, this is, this is pretty cool. This is a lot of fun and enjoying it. So that helped ease the, the end of the band for me. And so um, I just continued from there. And I think, you know, the break, the route made sense for me. You know, I don't think you have to do, <laughs> do it quite so circuitously, but, you know, for me, I wasn't ready to sit down and, and pour myself into a philosophy paper, uh, you know, coming out of undergrad. Um, but I was by the time I turned back to it in graduate school and I just um, um, enjoyed doing it. And um, 
since then. So yeah, and then I started working on imagination at some point because I was um, in, in graduate school because I was interested in the mind-body problem. I was interested in consciousness and I was coming at it from the angle of why does consciousness seem to present this puzzle to people about you know how physical things like us could be conscious and have consciousness. And I was coming at it from the angle of, is this something about the way we think about consciousness? Uh, and do we use mental imagery in a particular way when we think about consciousness? Um, do we use our imagination a certain way when we think about consciousness that gives rise to the appearance of a puzzle where there's maybe less of one than there uh, really is? Um, and people like Thomas Nagel had proposed this kind of thing. So Thomas Nagel has a famous footnote in his What Is It Like to Be a Bat paper? There's a whole literature around footnote 11 from that, <laughs> from that uh, very famous paper where um, you know he proposes two different kinds of imagination may sort of interact in this illicit manner to give rise to the appearance of a contingent relationship between consciousness and brain activity when in fact there's a, a necessary connection between the two. Anyway, that was my, seg my path into imagination as a topic. Um, and I've written about that and I've published work on that, but it's not in, um, in the book in any explicit way. I don't, I don't deal with consciousness in the book. Um, but that's how I started thinking about imagination. I started thinking about it as a, as using mental imagery to make judgments of different kinds, whether they're judgments about our minds or things in the world. And you know, and then judgments about consciousness. And then but I think that was the first step towards saying, towards the, the broad thesis, though, in the book, which is, hey, maybe imagining is uh, not this sort of, you know, I call it a sui generis mental state, you know, distinct from other ordinary states like beliefs, desires, and attentions. But maybe what we're doing when we're imagining is we're making judgments about different kinds of things. Um, and, you know, that's how I started just down that path. And um, that led to me thinking about how far that idea could be pushed. Um, and how far could we push the idea of thinking about imagination, not just as judgments ultimately, but then I started to think, well, okay, maybe there's some of these things we call imaginings could be desires or intentions or other things. And, and, and seeing how far I could push the project of breaking this thing called imagination into what I see as simpler, more digestible parts that are sort of uh, easier to understand, easier to think about how we might model those states in an, in an artificial mind. Um, so we're kind of getting into some of the, the ideas in the book, but that's right. sort of a brief account of how I started into imagination and, and got to the the ideas pursued in the book. Good. Well, yeah, one of the, you know, I guess the, the, the main thesis of the book, which is, you know, the one that's caused, I guess, most, um, you know, commentator responses is this idea of a reductive account of imagination in terms of uh, other more familiar folk psychological states. Um, let me, so before we, we, get to that. So that's the explaining bit. Um, 
uh, imagination itself you divide into two uh, overarching subtypes. Um, what you call imagistic imagining or I imagining and then uh, attitude imagining or a imagining and um, uh, they, they they overlap but they're but they're um, uh, well I, I said not so I said subtypes but that's actually not the way you see them so anyway let me just uh, yeah. let me just ask you can you explain those two um, yeah aspects or whatever of, of imagining and then how they're how you see them as being related sure um so i think this is a really important first step to trying to talk about imagination in in, in, a, in a theoretical and rigorous way and it's one that that often goes by a bit too quickly um and so i do spend some time in the first chapter really trying to um, draw here uh, an important distinction between imagistic imagining, which I understand is any kind of thought you might engage in that happens to involve a mental image or a, a mental state that seems to you kind of image-like. Um, and so that can include, you know, fantasizing with mental, mental imagery, but it can also include really ordinary things like what did I have for breakfast this morning. Oh yeah. I, forming an image now of those Cheerios. Um, you could say in this sense of imagining, well, I'm imagining the Cheerios. Well, okay, I could say it that way. I could also just say, I just remembered those Cheerios uh, and I made use of a mental image to do so. And I think that's a perfectly legitimate use of the word imagining. Um, I, um, you, you find, you know, I, <laughs> I, I offer as evidence of these, you know, such a claim, um, Looking in the Oxford English Dictionary of different definitions, you know, there are different senses of the word imagining. And, you know, one is just to form a mental image of something um, not present to the senses. Uh, just, but, of course, things in the past are no longer present to the senses. Um, so, okay, so we have that sense of imagining. Then there's another sense that is, um, which I, as you said, I call attitude imagining or a imagining, which is um, this idea of thinking about imaginary things, you know, um, in a kind of rich and elaborated way. Um, thinking about a nice sort of have a, it's a, it's a sort of a, a kind of thought where we, we think about the non-actual, the fantastical, the possible, and where it's, I add this part where it's, say it's epistemically safe to do so in the sense that, you know, sometimes someone with delusions might think about fantastical and not an actual and unreal things all the time, but or they have a lot of false beliefs or a false appraisals of how the world is imagining in this attitude, imagining sense has this, um, it's, it's this, this capacity we have to consider mere possibilities in a kind of safe way. It doesn't mean that, you know, we're mistaken about anything or the states aren't in need of revision or something um, where we have a kind of way of considering uh, non-actual things. And um, that's a perfectly legitimate sense of imagining as well. It meshes up with various uh, dictionary definitions of imagining that you'll find in the OED as well. Um, 
And I propose that it's really, there. you could study each of these two things if you want. You could say, look, I'm interested in imagistic imagining. This is a sense of just, I'm interested in using mental imagery to think about things. And that's a perfectly legitimate and interesting research project to do. And there's, it's gone on under the banner of the imagery debate in philosophy and psychology. You can ask him, what is the nature of an imagistic thought? Are there really image-like thoughts? What would a thought have to be like to be image-like? Or how can an image-like thing refer to particular things in the world? You know, there are lots of interesting questions to ask about imagistic imagining. But there are also interesting questions to ask uh, separately about attitudinal, this, you know, attitude imagining kind of imagining like, what is it to think about mere possibilities in this rich and uh, elaborated and epistemically safe way? What is that characteristic of thought? What does it do for us? Um, how should we understand its causes and effects? How sh- and, um, you know, when this that kind of imagining is invoked when we say, you know, oh, people are pretending and they're because they're imagining or they're drawing a fiction. Oh, they're imagining what's going on in the fiction, or they're reasoning about possibilities or hypothetical situations. They're imagining different scenarios. Um, and that's an, another thing you could study and be interested in. And what gets confusing here is that the two things overlap somewhat, right? So sometimes when I'm doing the second thing of just considering the, the attitude, imagine considering possible situations fantasies, fictions, I might be using some mental imagery to do so. And so it is also a case of imagistic imagining. Um, And so, you know, you've got cases of both. But, you know, we don't have to um, assume, at least at the outset of our sort of inquiry into these things, that every case of imagining in this attitude sense must make use of mental imagery. Maybe we will at the end of our inquiry decide, you know what, these, all these cases of considering possibilities in this rich and epistemically blameless way, they happen to always use mental imagery. But that's something I say we shouldn't, you know, assume that at the outset. It's not ruled by the Oxford English Dictionary that it would be so. There are various, you know, entries for imagining. They, they equate it to supposing, conceiving, considering things, planning. You know, there are all these sort of synonyms given for imagining that don't make any mention of, of mental imagery. Um, and then, you know, by this, you know, on the other side of the coin, um, there are cases of imagistic imagining that don't seem to fit the bill of this sort of considering mere possibilities in a rich and elaborated way. And I gave the example of just remembering my Cheerios from earlier this morning. Uh, I formed an image to do so quickly kind of, Oh yeah, that was just Cheerios. Um, you know, I wasn't sort of thinking about imaginary things or, you know, considering possibilities. It doesn't really fit the other attitudinal sense of imagining, but it certainly does in the sense of I formed an image to think about something. So I say, you know, let's let's distinguish those two things. And then I propose, like, what I'm really going to focus on here in the book is uh, the imagining and the attitudinal sense, the A-imagining. But, you know, with the proviso that plenty of that will involve mental imagery. So I'll need to find a place in the account for for where imagery features, even if the nature of imagistic thought won't really be the proper 
topic of this book. I mean, it's a topic I'm interested in, but mm-hmm. I didn't didn't make it the topic um, of this right. book. Right. Um, um, yeah. So okay, good. That's that's um, that's helpful. Um, and as you know, we both sort of mentioned uh, in passing somewhat. Um, for the most part, people in this area don't, um, they, they think about imagining, they don't make that distinction, at least not, not clearly or consistently, but, um, you know, they will write about imagination as if it were a sui generis, you know, sort of mental state, not reducible to belief, desire, or whatever. And of course, as, as, yeah. as you mentioned, um, uh, you think it is, you defend the idea that, you know, all these, these things are reducible. Um, so could you say a bit about like, what is in, you know, what, what, what imagination in, in both or, or attitudinal sense, um, what it reduces to and, and why those sorts of states, um, because at this, you, you rely on folk psychology here, right? Which in philosophical terms is, you know, belief, desire, intention, psychology, um, which not everybody mm-hmm. holds these days, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But that's sort of the tradition as far as folk psychology. So if you're going to reduce to the states of folk psychology, traditionally it's reduction to belief, desire, and intention. Um, and you, you mm-hmm. do generally follow that tradition, but I just, you know just to broaden the question a bit, it's like, you know, what's in your reduction base for imagination and, you know, and why is that there? Yeah. Um, so I do, you know, as you say, the main things I end up breaking it in imagination into in different contexts are beliefs and specifically things like judgments, which I see as a, a kind of the formation of a belief. Uh, intentions and and desires and um, you could do it differently you know you could say actually imagination reduces to you know thus and such kinds of neural activation and thus and such areas of the brain um, and you know that would be fine you know ultimately and maybe we ultimately will have a, a theory of that kind I see this as a sort of a way station a path towards getting there um, I see, you know, reducing whatever you think beliefs, desires, and intentions are, I think there'll be an important sort of way station towards getting a a more precise and more rigorous account of what imagination is. So um, with the idea of being like, look, um, if we're going to ultimately want some sort of account, an account of what beliefs and desires are in humans, like whether there are many different perspectives you can take about on this, um, you know, and which I I talk about in chapter two, um, whether you think beliefs and desires are, are these um, really robust um, uh, kinds of states that will be discovered as realized in the brain with a certain type of, you know, format and that they're proper topic of scientific study. Um, or you think, no, they're just kind of ways of, of um, ascribing dispositions to people, but there aren't like corresponding mental representations realized in the brain for each belief and desire that we might ascribe to a person. 
either way you go on that kind of question, um, you're going to um, want your sort of neuroscience to say something about, you know, why belief, why it's, it's useful for people to um, ascribe beliefs and desires to others. And it's, it seems to be an effective way of sort of explaining their behavior and predicting their behavior. And, um, and so um, then my thought is that, well, we're going to want an explanation of imagination as well. And uh, if we're already sort of going to be engaged in this project of making sense of what beliefs and desires are, it would be great if we could fold in imagination to that same project that's you know already underway and not think of it, have to think of it as a separate thing that needs to get done after we figured out what it is we're attributing to people when we attribute them beliefs and desires. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that speaks to your question completely, Carrie, but, you know, I'm, I, I don't have a hyper realist view of uh, belief desires and, um, uh, intentions. I, I describe different views in the book, what I call a, a heavy duty versus a light duty view of folk psychological states. And I sort of took those terms, I'm playing off those terms slightly from um, Eric Schwitzgabel, who talks about deep versus superficial views of folk psychological states. So um, on his sort of deep uh, views of them and my sort of heavy duty views of folk psychological states. This that's kind this that's kind of a view associated with people like Jerry Fodor, where you know if you believe that P, then you've got a representation tokened in your brain with the content P that's going to physically interact with other representations, and um, and you know with. The, the representations having a physical instantiation that's both, you know, these symbols interact with other mental symbols according to the physical properties of the symbols in ways that respect the semantic interpretations that we want to attribute to the symbols and so on. So there's a whole story there about, you know, how beliefs and desires are causally efficacious. And it's one that many people reject. Um, I'm not very happy with that story either. I more tend to think of, you know, um, more um, sympathetic to Daniel Dennett's view of, of folk psychological states is somehow when we attribute beliefs and desires, things, intentions to people, we're we're picking out real patterns in their behavior um, that allow us to understand them, predict what they'll do, explain what they'll do, um, but we shouldn't expect those patterns to sort of result in our finding mental representations in the brain with the exact, you know, uh, some meanings or semantics of the kind of kinds of phrases we use to describe people in these terms. Um, you know, it's, it's an open question what kind of representations we'll want, you know, a mature cognitive science will want to attribute to people. But nevertheless, we're going to want to see some mesh between that story and the practice of attributing beliefs and desires to people to say, okay, I get it. You know, there's not literally the representation in the brain with the meaning P when I say he believes that P, but there's this other thing that gives him the properties that we associate with someone who believes that P 
So we're going to want to be able to see how those two things mesh together, I think. And, um, and then the idea is just, well, that's why I just felt motivated and found it to be a useful thing to try to see if we could reduce imagination to these other pieces right. that we're going to want to have to say something about. Um, right. Well, I, I think one of the, maybe this is a somewhat, you know, the, one of the worries about reducing to that um, sort of comes from the, uh, you know, the angle of people like Christian Andrews or um, uh, Tad Zawitzki or Shannon Spaulding or these people who think of folk psychology in a much more, you know, it's not just about explaining behavior uh, and it's not just about attributing, you know, beliefs, desires, intentions. Um, and so they have a much, much broader um a more inclusive idea of what folk psychology involves, right? Both in terms of what it's for mm -hmm. and what, you know, what it is. And one of their big motivations, of course, is, is um, and this comes out, I think, most clearly with, uh, with Kristen Andrews, is, you know, if you're thinking about a capacity like mind reading, you know, the ability to ascribe, you know, other, you know, mental states to others, um, you know, their concern is that, it, one of their concerns is that the kind of traditional way of thinking about folk psychology is very, um, you know, anthropocentric. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's always contentious. Do other animals, you know, do they have the ability to mind read, i.e., you know, ascribe beliefs, desires, intentions? Um, uh, do they even have those sorts of, those sorts of mental states? And, and I think the worry that would carry over to your project is um, that if imagination is, you know, is, is going to be reduced to belief, desire, and intention, um, that prima facie seems to make it very contentious that, you know, non-human animals might have imagination. And I was just wondering, um, mm -hmm. Do you think that is that a, is that a consequence or a, a potential worry for you, or um, you know if you if indeed yeah. the reduction base is you know the sort of traditional beliefs, desire, intention? Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I don't have really, you know, I don't know where to begin ascribing beliefs and desires in through the chain of being. Um, so I don't have firm views about that. Um, I know you, you do, uh, or you, you have some really interesting, well thought out views on that. So maybe you can help me through this. Um, but, um, I, I'm comfortable. I'm pretty comfortable though, with the thought that, if um, that they're that we're not going to have reason to ascribe imagining states of imagining things to beings or entities that we're not also comfortable ascribing beliefs, desires, and things the like to, so they'll come together as a package. And I don't know. I don't necessarily think that package needs to st stop with human beings, um, but um, you know. Um, I think that where I'm coming at things with, I, I don't know any way to approach imagination than to sort of 
I think, or at least I think the best way is to point to the paradig- paradigmatic um, sort of situations where we're inclined to say that someone is imagining things, inclined to say from the outside, observing them. And, and many of these cases are things that seem um, not quite distinctively human, but, well, close to it, you know. So pretending, um, you know, is one and that I talk a lot about. And it's, it's a very interesting one to think about in the context of animals as well. Um, animals engage in a kind of in, in, in play that is... Um, uh, similar in, in in many ways to human pretense. And, but I think, I think a lot of the questions you can ask in this area about, um, you know, do animals imagine will be similar to questions. It will, will, will be, be answered at the same time as you're answering questions about, do they pretend, do they deceive? And, and these are questions about theory of mind and animals. Um, it certainly connect to that. And they're very difficult to answer, and there's a lot of controversy around those. Um, but um, you know, to the, to the extent that we might see um, animals engaged in deception, you know, so what what is it to deceive? Uh, can we give an account of what it is to deceive without attributing beliefs and desires to the animal? Um, and if um, if we can't, then, you know, um, well, if, you know, so I'm sort of, I'll, I'll come along with attributing them, imagining this and that if, if it's, if it seems that we can say that they're engaged in deception or pretense. And I think that the question of whether there's engaged in deception and pretense is going to connect to questions about certain kinds of, whether certain kinds of beliefs and desire descriptions seem appropriate to make to them as well. So, um, and then other contexts where we talk about imagination, things like hypothetical reasoning, um, counterfactual reasoning. Again, there's some evidence in different species that this goes on, but it's really difficult to, to know to what extent. Um, then, and then also enjoying fictions, which that might be distinctively human, uh, appreciating fictions as fictions. Uh, well, I'm not sure about that, um, but... Again, it were in, 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 and then in being creative. And these are all areas where you can make arguments that it goes beyond, um, you know, uh, the human species. But it's also different than something like perception and action, which clearly do. Um, so, you know, you've got these borderline cases um, to consider. And um, I guess I just see, I, I don't see it as, um, I just see, I'm, I'm open to animals having uh, imagination in, in these other in these different contexts, but I think I'm probably going to say that to the extent that I'm also prepared to say that they have various beliefs and desires as well. Right. Okay. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's get to a, a case or two of um, of your project. Um, so you have you go through a number of different uh, particular case, you've mentioned a few, um, you know, what is it to pretend and how, how do we engage with fiction? Uh, how do we, um, you know, reason conditionally or hypothetically? Um, so let's, I, I guess, you know, conditional reasoning, maybe that's a, a good one to start at least, although I do want to get to the fiction 
fiction case. Um, so how do you, how do you, you know, what's your take on conditional, you know, counterfactual, hypothetical sorts of reasoning um, without uh, assuming some sort of sui generis imagination? Because um, this, this is where philosophers yeah. tend to live in, in, you know, with lots of thought experiments, this is where they are. So how yeah. do you explain thought, thought experimentation, other forms of, of hypothetical or conditional reasoning by your account? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're, they're different kind, you know, they're different kinds of conditional reasoning and thought experiments and so on that go on. But um, the general idea is that, you know, we have a, we have an ability to reason about topics of our choice. Um, and we have an ability to choose the, you know, I can ask myself, you know, um, what'll happen if it, uh, snows tomorrow? Um, what goes on there? You know, um, so, well, on my account, I, um, I, I, I pose myself a question. What will happen if it snows tomorrow? And how am I going to answer that question? Well, I, you know, hopefully I've got some beliefs about what tends to happen when it snows around here. Um, and, um, you know, most broadly speaking, I'm going to say, well, you know, the, the most or simple way to think about it is just, well, typically, you know, I, I already believe that, you know, typically when it snows, then, um, people will be out shoveling their sidewalks, um, you know, People will be late to work. Schools will open late. Uh, I'm thinking about various things I already believed or tend to happen when it snows. And having brought a few of those in mind, I then conclude: if it snows tomorrow, then you know people will be out shoveling. There'll be some accidents on the roads. Schools will open late. Period. <laughs> so, uh, so you know. Um, now, how is that different? than any other account. Well, I didn't ever, you know, what I did is I, I asked myself a question and I'd retrieved information from my beliefs and I reasoned forward from those beliefs to a new belief with an if-then form. Uh, if it snows, then X, Y, and Z will happen. Um, now, the standard view of things is, no, no, you need this really important other part where you imagine that it snows. Uh, tomorrow. And, <laughs> you know, that's what you described isn't enough. Um, you know, you need to have this mental representation in your mind with the content. It is snowing or it snows tomorrow, I guess. I don't, you know. um, and, and then that helps you kind of figure out what will follow from that state of affairs. Um, and that, and that view was, I think, given a really nice and clear and detailed account in a paper by, um, Sean Nichols and Stephen Stitch in 2000 called their cognitive theory of pretense. And they map all this out. And, and that was very influential in my thinking about this early on, because they noticed a very sort of perplexing thing about that standard picture where to figure out, to, to reason conditionally, you you imagine the premise, you know, and they said, you know, if the whole picture were just, you know, to, 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 
to imagine that it's, you know, to reason hypothetically about what will happen if it snows tomorrow, just if, if all I did was just token this mental representation with the content, it's snowing. Well, you know, it, nothing's going to come follow from that other than, you know, uh, maybe logical deductions, whatever you could sort of deduce from that single proposition. Um, if it's just sort of hanging there on its own, you know, not interacting with any of your other mental states, uh, you're not going to get very far. You, you crucially need, you know, all your background beliefs about what tends to happen when it snows, uh, to inform whatever inferences are going to unfold quote unquote in the imagination. And then, so they say, oh, I guess what'll happen, we, what we actually have to do is copy our entire set of beliefs into imagination because <laughs> we can't know which ones are going to be relevant in advance, you know, uh, and that would be hard just to pick out certain ones to include in imagination. So you need to copy them all into imagination. And then, oh, but one of my beliefs is that it's not snowing. So that needs to be weeded out before it's copied <laughs> into imagination. But all the other ones are copied into imagination. And and then it, we get going doing an imagination of what we would have done in belief if we had believed it's snowing, and um, and they're actually mirroring in a very sort of cognitive account various proposals philosophers have put forward about how what what it how to understand conditional reasoning, uh, going back to Ramsey and, and um, Stallmaker and others, but. In any case, when you really put it in terms of that cognitive account, it sounds kind of crazy. Um, that a, and, you, and you immediately have this thought. But if I only, if if only I didn't have to put that one proposition in imagination, if I, you know, and then copy all the beliefs there. If I, if only I could do this just with my beliefs, you know. And I got to thinking about that. And I thought, well, why can't I? I mean, what is so illicit about this? It just using the beliefs, you know, and spelling it out. And, and, um, you know, there are different, there's, it, it ends up being a very complex topic because there's different kinds of conditionals. Um, there's the conditional as it behaves in systems of formal logic. There's the conditionals of everyday speech. There's counterfactual conditionals that operate differently than conditionals in the indicative mood. And philosophers have said a lot about all this. Um, so, you know, I get into that in a couple of chapters of the book, but the main strategy in both of them is to say, really, why do we, you know, why do we need this step of putting it into imagination? Why don't we just, clearly there's some reasoning going on. Clearly our beliefs are absolutely central to how we reason hypothetically and conditionally. What is really forcing us other than, you know, I suggest kind of bewitchment by language to to really think that we need this other imagining state to get things going um well let me i mean one one motivation might be that you know you know when we're imagining something uh in in a way we're, we're setting what we believe aside and i don't mean you know, the sort of epistemically safe sense that you were talking about before or anything like that. I just mean, uh, you know, again, just sort of intuitively expressing the idea. Um, you know, imagination is something, you know, that doesn't exist or anything like that. And if it's all based on on belief, you know, and, and on, you know, the content of what is there, 
how are we supposed to get from the content of what is there, you know, potential contents of belief Mm -hmm. to these totally different contents, which are not, not already in belief. Yeah. Um, it's a counterintuitive view. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so, <laughs> uh, you gotta say more uh, than that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. Um, so, um, so we were talking about it in the context just now of hypothetical reasoning. Yeah. Okay. Um, counterfactual reasoning. So, if we stick to that context there's a really strong sense in which we are not trying to leave behind what we believe. We are trying to acquire a new belief and we, we want that belief to be based on our past beliefs. Um, now linguistically we say, I'm imagining something I don't believe. I'm imagining that it's snowing, but that I'm imagining that it snows tomorrow. So stick with my example. Um, okay, but then we can give an account of what that amounts to in terms of using these other beliefs to form this new belief about if it snows tomorrow, then X, Y, Z, and R. And, um, it remains true that I imagined something I don't believe, um, But what it is to imagine something I don't believe is to engage in this reasoning process that only involves beliefs. So it's not as though I deny, right, the the ability to think about things we don't believe or to imagine what we disbelieve. Um, I just give an account of what it is to do so. Um, So, and... um, I think the, the yeah. maybe I didn't, the, the question was, suppose I want to imagine it will blick tomorrow. Hmm. And I'm coming up blick? with some yeah. blick, yes. Uh, yeah, I, okay. Because I don't want you to, I don't want to use anything that I believe. Okay. Um, and so how do I do that? Well, I don't know. Um, um, I don't know what it would be to imagine that it will blick. Um, because but I don't know what it is I to guess, blick. Right. But isn't, isn't um, that what imagination is supposed to be a, a sort of a creative attitude? It's, it's supposed to be creative in this way, which belief is not creative. I suppose maybe that's the idea. Hmm. Um, let me, so I, I mean, where I see you pushing is towards, you know, just for imaginings that just have nothing to do with any beliefs I might go on to form. Um, I mean, I, and I don't want to give you, if I hope that's not getting the view wrong. It's just, you know, when you put it in terms of, hypothetically reasoning about what will happen if it blicks tomorrow. Well, that's something we can't do if we don't know what it is to blick. So, but that seems to get your, 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 your question wrong if I put it that way. So maybe it's 
just I'm just imagining that it blicks where um blicking is this thing that is doesn't actually ever happen it, it's I um I don't know I I feel compelled to give it some sort of specification like blicking is when um pizza is served for free at every restaurant or you know <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> you know yeah. like, well, maybe I mean maybe what you, you're what you're suggesting is that um, imagination is in some sense uh, constrained by what we already know or believe, and and we just can't. We we may think imagination is you know completely open ended and we can imagine anything, um, but in fact we can't. Well, it might it might at least be constrained by what kinds of concepts we have, um, you know. Uh, but I would think that might be true of just any thought you might have, or you know. Then if there's non conceptual thought, whatever kind of I mean, still those represent thoughts would have some sort of accuracy or you know conditions or something. Um, um, We I, certainly we want to. I want to be able to talk about create, you know, the creative side of imagination, and um, but um, it's um, but I, you know, I'm I'm always sort of motivated here not to or to connect it to you know what we believe, what our what we desire, what our purposes are, mm-hmm. um, and not to view it as something that kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, and that, um, and, and I think that works out in a lot of cases, though there are cases of, um, um, imagination that, you know, I talk about as in, in the chapter on creativity, where there is a legitimate sense in which people talk about ideas coming out of nowhere when they're, you know, involved, in artistic creation or really any kind of creation or, 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 you know, um, um, and being interested in where those kinds of ideas come from and how we could understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. we could, we could talk about that and I give a kind of, I start to get it going a different direction there, um, yeah. towards the end, but, um, that's actually a topic that philosophers have said less about. And the funny thing is that like, the kinds of contexts where a lot of philosophical discussion has gone on about imagination are ones that I think actually lend themselves really well to this reduction to belief and desire um, uh-huh. and explaining them in that way. But that doesn't mean that every context will. And I do think certain cases of creativity put pressure on that, even if they still don't quite lend themselves to the sorts of views that people have had of imagination. Um, right. So maybe, maybe we can talk a bit about, I mean, since you, since you brought it up, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what is your account of, of creative cognition? Um, you know, being imaginative. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's, there's a couple of different ways to go with it. I mean, there are cases of being creative that are, that are well sort of 
um, framed as you engaged in some, you know, clever uh, problem solving, you know. So I give an example just in the book of like, you know, kids in a science class being given certain materials and they have to create the tallest structure they can with those materials. It's a common kind of assignment, right, school. Um, And you can see, oh, this is going to involve some creativity on the part of the kids. You can also see it like, well, okay, they know properties of the paper, the tape, um, you know, the popsicle sticks, and they reason if I do this with that, then this other thing will happen. And if that happens, then I can do this and that. And, and we can see them as engaged in this kind of hypothetical reasoning that I've said doesn't require anything other than sort of an ability to prompt yourself for your existence existing beliefs and things and notice their different entailments and what they suggest and what they don't. So I think you could do some creativity like that. And that's, and, and even the people, the philosophers who've talked about imagination and creativity and, and who have said that imagination needs to be this distinct state from belief, they've still kind of represented it often as this Kind of, but it's something that allows you to try out ideas hypothetically and see what leads to what. So they've still kind of described it as a reasoning process. Um, whereas I think the really difficult cases of creativity to explain are the kinds where, um, you know, for instance, my, the example I go with in the book um, are songwriters um, who you know, are always wanting to be creative. And, and on the one hand, they could write a song, you know, in a, in five minutes, a decent song or whatever, and it wouldn't be hard, but it wouldn't be a very good song. Um, they're always waiting for that moment to get right. The special creative inspiration that brings about a great song. And, and the funny thing, you know, that they talk about, and I take, take a number of, you know, quotes in the book from, uh, uh, this really great collection of, interviews by a guy named Paul Zolo. Uh, he has this book called Songwriters on Songwriting, where he gets into these really in-depth uh, interviews with everyone from Bob Dylan to Randy Newman, Paul Simon, uh, Neil Young, um, R.E.M., Susan Vega, what, you know, Madonna, even, you know. So, but lots of songwriters really in-depth about the nature of their craft. And um, one thing that's still a really recurring theme for all of them is that, yeah, they're waiting for that special moment. It's very difficult to will it to happen. Um, but they've learned various strategies to sort of, and they, it, there's often a, a, a really explicit appeal to the subconscious, like letting it come from the subconscious, letting those things speak, um, that you can't force it, that who knows why it comes, when it comes, but you have to be open to it coming. <laughs> you know, they all get, it's a very, you know, um, very much a theme that, you know, there's no, it's very, it's, it's, and no one would have expected it to be, but they, you know, they really emphasize it. It's, it's really not like teasing out the, it, <laughs> the consequences of a set of premises, you know? Right. Um, uh, it's just, you know, this thing comes, it's, it's obviously what comes out as a result of your, your experience and of your, your tuning, you know, what you've, your training, what you've listened to, what you love yourself, you know, it's all shaped by those things, but it's not coming out of them as some sort of 
deduction uh, or a plan, and um, they don't know how to describe it otherwise. Uh, they, they think it, it's not conscious. Um, and, and these, and, and, and then, okay, and then so furthermore, <laughs> these might be the most difficult things you think to model within artificial intelligence. So, you know, this question that's, you know, of the moment, you know, what about AI? Can machines be creative? And, you know, on the one hand, there's a very obvious answer. Yes. Well, of course. I mean, they can do, right. um, you know, we've already seen algorithms and, and you know, AI, different kinds that can compose little songs and make paintings and, they're better than the, you know, the paintings your kindergartner will bring home or, you know, and you wouldn't accuse your kindergartner of not being creative. So, you know, what are we talking about here? Um, well, okay, I guess they could be creative and there's different ways to push back on it. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, but the AI is not writing great songs, you know, they're, they're, you know, um, there, it's all going to be kind of derivative or it's all going to be. And, and so the question isn't really, could AI be creative? Um, it's, could it be a great artist? <laughs> you know? And uh, what does that take? And so that's what all these songwriters are talking about. It's like, they're not curious. They know how to write a basic song. Um, there's something creative about it, I guess, but they want to know where the great songs come from. Mm. And they're kind of mystical about it. Um, okay, so what can we do as, you know, philosophers of mind, you know, and psychologists who, who want to try to say something, uh, I don't know, to, to point the way towards something like a scientific understanding of those great moments. Um, and um, I was very kind of interested in um, these new wave of um, deep learning uh, AI algorithms that have been a lot in the press and people have probably seen discussion of it um, where on the one hand, you've got very sophisticated um, deep learning algorithms that learn to sort of discriminate one thing from another. So you know, if you search in Google photos and you just, you can just type in dog and it'll find any, any picture you have on your whole library of things, pictures in, that happens include a dog from any possible angle or, you know, soccer or whatever the case may be, these different terms um, you know, these algorithms have, have been trained to, um, to be able to discriminate those things, uh, if they appear in an image. And, um, one of the famous features of these things is that, um, when people are, you know, creating these algorithms, it's not as though they're writing into them a, a set of explicit instructions about, you know, okay, if it's if it has four legs, fur, snout, you know, ears, about that's and such size, say it's a dog, you know, there's no right. such rules like that plugged into it. Instead, you've got all the a vast number of interconnected nodes in a network that over many trials are, are just tweaked, you know, uh, ever so slightly, um, depending on whether it's giving the right answers for the right stimuli or not on each trial. And so you know, there's a certain algorithm that just tweaks them in a very mechanical way in accordance to whether it's doing it properly or not. And you do this long enough and you get a network that's able to discriminate very reliably and people won't know exactly how it's doing it or what features are really, you know, it's really cued into in the stimulus, but it's just able to do it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's, 
this uh, will be familiar to many, but in any case, that's how a lot of these uh, deep learning algorithms work. There's a kind of mystery about what it's latching onto, but it's very good at doing the discriminations. And now there are um, people have pitted um, these kinds of networks against each other in, in what are called these um, generative adversarial uh, networks, where essentially you have, um, it's, it's a little more complicated than this, but what you have is um, they've been able to essentially reverse uh, one of these networks. So instead of discriminating, um, say, faces of celebrities, right? the famous one does this, it um, is able to produce instances of the kind of thing that it's been trained to discriminate. So this one may produce, you know, celebrity-looking faces by using its, uh, its carefully weighted network that was originally, you know, formulated through... Um, uh, a long training process of discriminating celebrity from non-celebrity, celebrity from other things. And then once it was set trained in that way, it could then have that, have that training reversed to create instances of celebrity looking faces. And then that's, that's run against. So then, you know, you get these adversarial networks where that one generates a celebrity looking face. And then another network trained to um, discriminate faces, celebrities from non-celebrities judges whether that is a real celebrity or a non-celebrity hmm. and if it if it um detects that it was not a real celebrity then the other one that generated it is adjusted to uh to count to sort of uh counteract it it was in a sense gave the wrong production because it was judged not to be a celebrity hmm. uh, on the other hand if it fools the discriminator and the discriminator counts it as a celebrity then the discriminator is is adjusted to make up for having made that error. Hmm. Um, so you have them looping against each other this way, uh, fine-tuning each other in this sort of iterative process where the one gets better at creating fakes, the other gets better at detecting them. And through that process, um, it continues for a while until the thing can get, you know, it produces fakes that are, you know, humans can't you know, discriminate from you say that's probably a celebrity, but I've never seen that person, and so on. <laughs> and this could do this for rabbits, non-rabbits, you know. In any case, but you get them sort of working against each other. Um, this is interesting in the context coming back to creativity because now you have AI that's not just discriminating one thing from another, but it's producing things. So, um, producing in some cases, you know whether it's a photorealistic person or, you know, they have versions that can take, um, uh, you know, a photograph and, 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 you know, produce, uh, generate what it would look like as painted by Van Gogh or, you know, or more interestingly, can take Van Gogh and generate what the photo should look like. Um, so in any case, you got this productive ability, and what I found think is interesting about this is both there, there's I think there's some interesting analogies to draw between that, the way these work, and at least possible for how we might start to think about these deeper, seemingly subconscious acts of artistic creativity. Um, because you've got a couple things. First, as with the artist, um, 
what the generative adversarial network, what it generates is deeply informed by what it has been trained to discriminate. Okay, so it's definitely um, starts with discrimination and in, 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 in its training there, just as the artist starts and, you know, absorbing all kinds of artworks. Um, and then there's also this non, whatever, while there is, of course, a way, there are procedures that are being followed in its production of new things. You know, it is an algorithm after all. It's not, there are no articulable rules that it's following um, to do so in the way that, you know, famous of all con- connectionist deep learning networks of this kind, just as there's no articulable rule about what's it looking for to call something a dog. No, it's just got all these, you know, thousands, if not millions of connections carefully weighted that cause it to say dog or not. The same thing going in the production route. There's no sort of, you know, reasoning process you could lay out for why it created the specific face it did. So suppose you gave that generative, you know, that, that, that network, um, the ability to sort of reflect on its own processes and try to say why it generated the face it did or, or if it, or the painting it did, uh, you gave it language. Um, you know, and then analogize that to the artist, right? Who's sort of being asked to reflect on their own creative process. Why did you write that song? Where did that lyric come from? Well, you know, the net, on the one hand, well, it was an algorithm of a certain kind that's deeply informed by its training on discriminating certain kinds of things. But you could never describe how it worked. Um, the, the, the computer wouldn't be able to use English or any natural language to describe how it came up with what it did. Um, there, because there are no such, you know, sort of language-like rules being followed to produce what it produces. Um, right. It well, might be inclined to say that it was all, you know, it's right. subconscious. <laughs> right. You know? Right. I suppose. I mean, I'm. I'm. We're. We're. We're running out of time, actually. Um, unfortunately, okay. because I, I would like to keep talking because you're making me think of. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you're aware of uh, in in painting Kumar and Malamed. I think you know where they came up with the a computer generated America's best love painting. And yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's 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 awful in its banality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it, but it's exactly the sort of thing like well, it takes you know whatever it does, it takes the average or you know it just takes mm-hmm. what people vote they like most you know george washington and a cliff and waterfall <laughs> and it just kind of pushes it all together and the result yeah. is is, is <laughs> one of the ugliest absurd. things you've ever seen but yeah. okay um we could keep talking about art and creativity and fiction we didn't even get to fiction which is also a clear case but yeah um, not to um not to test the patience of our listeners, um, I, sure. I think we should we should end. Um, and so maybe quickly, you could just say, you know, are you is this what you're working on now, or are you going to something else entirely? Uh, I'd like to do more on creativity. I, I came to that towards the end of this book project, so I think I will. Um, I'm also working more on um, episodic memory, which um, you know we can. I know. You, um, 
I had a question about that. Um, and um, it, there are questions that I hadn't gotten into there that are interesting to consider about where, where does that fit into these questions about the relationship of that to imagination and to belief and desire and these other things. Um, so I've been having fun working on that. And, um, and um, some other projects I'd, on, I'm interested in language and the relationship between that and, and abstract concepts and uh, inner speech and some of my other research. So right. you know, I have a number of different things going on, but um, um, taking a pause on the imagination stuff, except that I've been drawn into this other sort of literature that's been going on on um, episodic remembering um, that had been kind of chugging along without interaction from imagination folks. And now those two communities are sort of coming together a bit more. Uh-huh. And well, there's some interesting discussions happening there. So part of those. Good. As well. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, well, I look forward to seeing some of that stuff. Um, but for the moment, um, we have to part. Um, so I just want to thank you again for taking the time to talk uh, with new books and philosophy about your new book. Yeah, thanks, and, Gary. It was a lot of fun. Okay, and good luck with the uh, with the new projects. All right. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to my interview with Peter Langland Hassan, associate professor of philosophy at the University of Cincinnati. We've been talking about his new book, Explaining Imagination which just came out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.